Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. For a year, we had a custody case and I lost custody of my daughter and I fell apart. I didn't have the guts and I didn't have the strength of character. I became a junkie. Within a short time, I was doing um, stick-ups with a toy gun to get money for drugs and putting fear into people and expecting to get killed by the police every time I did it. And eventually I was caught and put into prison and sentenced to do 10 years. After two and a half years, I escaped from the prison. I spent 10 years on the run as a fugitive with a price on my head, wanted, um, and was eventually recaptured in Germany, spent 19 months there fighting the extradition to win some concessions and did when won four concessions in a row, um, conducted the case in German, learned, taught myself how to read and write German and fought the case in German, in Germany and won several concessions, then returned to Australia, was put into solitary confinement for two years. And really that was the big turning point in my life. There are two big turning points. The first one was solitary confinement for two years. That was really the making of me, not the breaking. It was the making. It's either breaks you or it makes you solitary for two years. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Greg, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. And what a nice name, Srinivas, meaning the abode <laughs> of good fortune. Such a nice name. It's funny that you know that, you know, I, as I, as I, you know, finished reading your book, uh, The Spiritual Path, all of which we were, we'll talk about, I, I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, wow, this guy is more Indian than I am. He seems to know more <laughs> about my own religion than I did. So on that note, I, I thought I would ask a very fitting question to start. And that is, uh, what religious or spiritual beliefs were you raised with? And how did that end up impacting and, and shaping the choices that you've made throughout your life? I was raised in the Catholic faith and Catholic belief. Um, and baptized, confirmed, uh, and you know, attended church, went to a Catholic school for all of my primary and secondary education. Uh, my parents were not well off. They were um, working class people working very hard. And it, uh, it was a big commitment to um, afford to send me there. But like many other people from uh, a tough working class background, 
the principle was if you went to a Catholic school and managed to survive it, you would get entrance to a university. There was a high probability that you'd make it through and get to university, whereas in the local high school and tech schools in the area for other working class kids, uh, there was a lower probability that you would succeed into tertiary education. So my parents struggled to put me through that primarily for that reason, that they valued the education system. They didn't attend church too regularly. They went on all the major feast days. They went on all the days that we were required as a family to, go, to attend school functions on feast days, and they went to those. But they were not regular mass goers. My mother was a very devout devotee of Jesus, and she knelt in prayer for an hour every day of her life. Um, every day of her 85 years, as soon as she was old enough from the age of five to begin that, and she never missed and loved Jesus, had an abiding love for Jesus. So I was raised in a Catholic tradition that was principally bound around the education that it provided, but it also provided a set of moral precepts and a way of looking at the world, which in itself um, stripped away perhaps of um, dogma um, is... Um, not a, a negative moral instruction. Um, it's ironic that so many Catholics who are lapsed Catholics, so to speak, who don't attend church anymore, who don't really think of themselves as practicing Catholics, but who meet one another across the world and share much in common, and it comes from that early instruction. So I was raised as a Catholic in the Catholic education system, and uh, quite a bit of that has remained with me through the years. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I think the thing that struck me the most about what you just said is being stripped of dogma. And I, I feel like so often religion, you know, tends to be incredibly dogmatic for certain people. They're they're almost fanatical. Uh, why? Why is that? Like, so for somebody like me, I mean, the joke I always say is like part of the reason I'm not big on a lot of Indian religious traditions is they're incredibly time consuming. Like you know, I always joke is like, just go to an Indian wedding. You'll see what I'm talking about. Yes, indeed, it's true. Uh, but, you know, it's a complex question. Um, really, if we go back, we need to take a meta perspective on our humankind. We tend to think of human beings only in terms of the last 25,000 years or so since we domesticated ourselves. But for 250,000 years before that, we were gatherer hunters. And that world is a very different world to the world in which we live today. Um, the principal difference being that in that world, no human being could own the planet. The planet owned the human beings. And in our world, we have a fiction that a human being can own a piece of this planet, which in private property, which of course is nonsense. The planet was here before us. The planet will be here long after the last human has been e extinguished. The planet will be here for another 4 billion years. Um, <laughs> so the, we, the planet owns us. We don't own the planet and for 250,000 years, we lived that way. We didn't work for a living. The planet provided what we needed to sustain us and to survive. Our numbers were small enough uh, that we didn't deplete the resources in any given area. And we managed to cover the entire planet. Every single place where we could walk, we walked over 250,000 years and from Africa to Australia. So uh, that really is the big picture of who we are. And in that 250,000 years, 
there is no religion as such. Religions were founded once we domesticated animals and crops and stayed in one place. But were we spiritual in those 250,000 years before religions were born? Yes, I think we were profoundly spiritual, perhaps even more spiritual than we are today, because we were more intimately connected with our natural planet. Nevertheless, um, that bigger picture of who we are gives us a bit of a perspective on religion and where it fits into who we are. We were spiritual for a very, very long time before we became religious. So, you know, as somebody who has this perspective, I mean, one of the things that struck me most was this thing that you said at the very beginning of the book, that God is by definition so huge, so immense beyond imagination that I don't think anyone can know anything about God directly. It would be like matter and antimatter colliding, so to speak, leading to our annihilation. So with this perspective in mind, how does that explain, you know, things like religious extremism? And, and, you know, and we see it, you know, in every religion. It's not just, you know, you know, terrorists in one country or another, but it's, it's in all forms. We have this sort of extremism that ironically, the comedian George Carlin said, you know, he's like more people have been killed in the name of God than almost any other than any other cause. <laughs> Uh, yes, I mean, well, uh, I think that's pretty hard to say. God, the name of God maybe have been bandied about, but most of the killing was in the name of greed yeah. and the assumption of power um, and had very little to do with God or any, any concept of God. It was us butchering one another for um, a de- definite net benefit for someone who always benefited from it, and it wasn't God. Um <laughs> We tend to blame God for the things that we've done to one another and so forth and say these things are done in the name of God and so forth. Here's a simple formula for me. A fanaticism is the opposite of faith. Um, mm. A fanatic is someone who's lost their faith. They are filled with religion but have no faith. People who have faith um, uh, understand that every single thing that happens to you is an individual test of your faith whether it's a good thing that happens and how are you going to react to that? Are you going to react as a faith-filled person or are you going to abuse that good fortune that came your way? And every misfortune that happens to you, are you prepared for this? Are you ready to handle this with faith, to accept it? So um, this deep understanding of faith is a different thing. There are many, many, many religious people, I'd say probably most religious people, have a lot of faith. But you can be deeply religious and have no faith at all. And if you know what I mean, and you can have no religion and be profoundly filled with faith, faith in yourself, Mm -hmm. faith in your loved ones, faith in your friends and those around you, and faith in the divine, in whatever conception you have of that. It may be just the universe that you say, I just have faith in the universe, whatever it is. There can be people filled with faith whose lives are constantly reflecting how much faith. See, we say Faith is invisible. It isn't. Faith is visible in every single person who has it. Mm, wow. So you basically talked about the fact that we were spiritual before we were religious, which makes me want to ask the question, you know, I, people always, on a dating profile, you know, I never fell off, you know, saying I'm Hindu. I always say spiritual, but not religious. Like that's my, you know, even though I was raised Hindu. So what is the, the distinction between the two? What's the difference between spirituality and religion? Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The spiritual has no lawyers. The spiritual has no bank account. It Mm. is a relationship between you and a spiritual essence in this universe that is imbued throughout the universe by the creator. Now, people can believe that or not. I don't care. I'm just saying it. 
I'm not trying to convince someone of anything that I say. I'm saying what occurs to me. If it makes sense to you, great. And if it doesn't, fine. Throw it aside and keep going. Keep searching for answers that do make sense to you. So for me, the spiritual has no lawyers and no bank accounts. Religions have lawyers and bank accounts. If you offend the religion, they can come after you with lawyers and they can pay them because they have bank accounts. When you are connecting to the spiritual as an individual person, there's no lawyer to intercede for you. It's you and whatever your conception of the divine is. And it, it has no bank account. There's no way you can buy your way into it. It's not possible or buy your way out of it. The spiritual is beyond this. So the, in a simple sense, religions are deeply connected to this material world. They have a set of moral precepts that are about how people should behave in this spiritual, in this material world. The spiritual is not about this material world. It is about the spiritual world, which is as remote from this material world as the quantum is. Just as the quantum world and the quantum realm of quantum particles and fundamental particles bre- breaks most of the rules that apply in this material world we live in, even though it's right here, and we're enmeshed and immersed in it, all those rules are different when you get to the microcosmic and when you get to the very, very fast-moving and the very, very tiny particles, all those rules break down. When And yet it's right here and we know and we accept it and believe it. Well, the spiritual is like that too. It's right here, but it has a completely different set of rules. And it is beyond this material world and nothing to do with this material world. In a sense, if I can just say this as a last point, Srinivas, the, for me, religions are there to help people how to, be, to, to behave in this world. And the spiritual is not about being right or wrong or about being good or evil. The spiritual is about being connected or not connected, about being profoundly connected or only having a thin, attenuated connection. But it is not about being, it's not going to make you a better person, not going to make you a nicer person. Following a religion in a sincere and authentic way, might help you to be a better person in this world. But the spiritual is not about that. It's about being connected. And it is not about being better or worse, right or wrong, good or evil. That's my perception of it. Yeah, well, it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, people, I always joke with my friends that, you know, uh, Randy Komisar, a venture capitalist, uh, talks about this concept called uh, the deferred life plan on in his book, The Monk and the Riddle. And I always jokingly say, like, Indians believe in a deferred life plan because they believe in reincarnation. And I'm like, at the, the rate I've been going and given the skeletons in my closet, I'll be reincarnated as a cockroach. So I'm going to maximize this life as much as possible, which makes me wonder. So with this perspective, like, what is your belief on about the afterlife. And also, how old were you when you started to see the world through this lens? Because this is a very strange sort of lens for, you know, what I might imagine somebody, you know, my perception of somebody from a working class background, you know, uh, that went to Catholic school. Like, when did you start to think about these things? Well, I'd always been thinking about it, but in a hostile and antagonistic way. Um, Like many um, lapsed Catholics, I studied religions in order to break them and destroy them, to attack them, to find weaknesses and internal inconsistencies. And so we've got some Jamaican noise in the background here, some trucks. You might be able to hear that. It's fabulous. The noise of the trucks here is just incredible. It's like theater. (laughs) Can you hear that? That's just a plastic truck. It's fabulous. So, uh, (laughs) you know, each one of these things that we are looking at in um, in terms of 
belief systems and so on. When we finally reach a point where we start to deeply and profoundly ask the question, is there something there beyond this? Is there something there? Whenever that happens to us in life, there have been many, many steps along the way. So being a kind of soldier against God, studying um, comparative religion and theology just so that I could find the weaknesses in the logic and so forth, the inconsistencies, the things that broke down the coherence of that religion for the and so on. And I had actually argued so well, knowing other people's texts so well, that I'd, I'd made um, more than once made a believer cry. And I didn't set out to make the person cry. I set out to attack the lack of logic that I found in it. What I discovered uh, over time is much closer to, um, I think, you know, a, a Kierkegaard um, as a Catholic philosopher, when he was challenged and they said, but if God is illogical. He said, of course God is illogical. If God were logical, I would not believe in him. So there is a sense in which you have to break down the way that you think about the laws, the the logic, the systems that you've applied in this, from this material world to a spiritual understanding. So along the way, while I was struggling against the concept of God, I was studying religions, learning how to pray, traveling the world, immersing myself in other people's religions, and so on. And it was just despite my sort of um, hostility, intellectual hostility, I was learning along the way. And it's a fairly recent thing, I can say about eight years ago, I made the decision to go off the grid to look after my parents, uh, who were both very ill. As it turns out, they were both dying. We weren't entirely sure at the time, but then mum was diagnosed with terminal cancer and dad passed away six months before mum from a massive heart attack, and which had been an ongoing condition for him. So I went to Australia to look after my parents and decided this is the time to go off the grid. And I had been observing my teacher in India for about five years and watching him perform his ceremonies. And he was the first and only teacher I'd ever met who cut through the, there's that word again, the dogma and the the text to speak only from his personal experience. To just tell you, look, the text will tell you this and that if you want to know it's all there, but this is what I know from my experience. And I loved his teachings and observed him. And when I had that opportunity to go back and look after my parents and go off the grid, off the social grid, no parties, no lunches, dinners, breakfast, no um, movies, no outings, just stay home, look after my parents and go into the spiritual, I then decided to take the leap of faith and to say, all right, I'm going to do this. And if I do it, if I stand there and say, hello, to the divine, I acknowledge you, I need to be ready for that. So I prepped for about a year and got myself ready emotionally, psychologically, and so on, looking deep into my um, flaws and my weaknesses, my um, problems that I, I'd faced in life that I'd maybe passed on to other people, but they were really my own. Accept responsibility and leave my ego, my vanity and my pride at the door because they're not required blessings. Those are not required. And uh, that was about a year of prep. And then I said, okay, I'm ready. And made that leap of faith, stood there and said for the first time, I acknowledge you. I surrender the negative things in myself that are not required to give you devotion. So I'm surrendering my vanity and my pride and 
my any sense of malice or any ill thought I might have anywhere inside me. I've surrendered all of that. I don't need that when I'm coming to acknowledge you. So I acknowledge you. I surrender the negative in myself and I am devoted to you. And whether you are, you are beyond needing or wanting my devotion, you are whatever you are. The, you are the magnitude of this thing that created it all, the source of everything. So in this gigantic creation machine, all the multiverses combined. And so you don't need wanting and need, you don't have this. You are beyond wanting. You are beyond needing. But you created a universe in which I'm free. I have free will. I can freely give this to you or I can freely withhold it. So I freely give this, knowing that you don't need it and want it. I freely give it to you in the hope that it connects us, that in some way I can be connected to you, that I in by offering something to you. So I started to blow the conch twice a day, every day for five years, took notes on this. Every time I finished, I take notes on what I felt and what I experienced and then condense that five years of experience into a little book called The Spiritual Path. Yeah. Well, what I wonder, and, and we'll get into the book right after this, so what was the, the trajectory post high school uh, after after finishing school in college? Like, I mean, obviously, I know about your previous book, Shantaram. Somebody gave that to me once, and I remember, I think I put it, I got through about 150 pages, and uh, I stopped reading it. I don't remember why. Uh, and now I'm kind of curious to go back to it. But uh, you know, what happened in between you know, high school and getting to writing this book? Well, quite a lot, a number of lifetimes, in fact. But I went to, I left school and home at 16 and went to work in factories. I wanted to marry my girlfriend, who was two years older than I was. She was 18 then, and I was 16, but my parents wouldn't give permission, and we couldn't marry until I was 18. So I left home, got a job in a factory, and became a sheet metal worker and a welder, and loved the job, loved the work, terrific work, hard on the body, Welders, they go in the eyes and they go in the legs from standing in concrete all their lives. They end up in factories. They end up with varicose veins and burned out eyes. Um, and every welder will tell you this is hard. The, the safety equipment's much better now than it was back in the day. But it was a terrific job with hardworking, decent men. And I really loved it. Really good people, good men and women working around me in those factories. And I enjoyed it. Then my uh, wife at the time insisted that I go to night school. I went to night school over two years and loved it and did very well at night school and got a scholarship to university, went to university, was studying um, philosophy and literature, and everything was going well. And then my marriage broke up. And for a year, we had a custody case, and I lost custody of my daughter. And I fell apart. I didn't have the guts. And I didn't have the strength of character. I became a junkie. Within a short time, I was doing um, stick-ups with a toy gun, to get money for drugs and putting fear into people and expecting to get killed by the police every time I did it. And eventually I was caught and put into prison and sentenced to do 10 years. After two and a half years, I escaped from the prison. I spent 10 years on the run as a fugitive with a price on my head, wanted, um, and was eventually recaptured in Germany, spent 19 months there fighting the extradition to win some concessions and did when won four concessions in a row, um, conducted the case in German, learned, taught myself how to read and write German and fought the case in German, in Germany and won several concessions, then returned to Australia, was put into solitary confinement for two years. And really that was the big turning point in my life. There are two big turning points. The first one was solitary confinement for two years. That was really the making of me, I think, as a person. 
not the breaking, it was the making. It either breaks you or it makes you solitary for two years. And um, the second was meeting my teacher and seeing what authentic, sincere devotion really looks like when someone gives everything they have and how they're not exhausted at the end of it, they're charged by it and watching this. So those are the two big turning points. So, you know, returned to Australia, (laughs) did the two years in solitary, then did four more years in the max, um, became a teacher in the prison and was teaching men who could not read and write, but were doing life sentences, how to read and write and to enjoy the library, which is available. And it was an, it's a whole universe of experiences and adventures there that were previously closed to them, but they could suddenly take those books out and read them and immerse themselves in them. And that made the time go very fast. Uh, the last four years, uh, a sense of purpose is the thing that um, will really help the time pass in any prison very quickly when you have a sense of positive purpose. When I got out of the prison, I had five years parole to do. I started a little company. I thought, what can I do? I'm a counterfeiter, forger, smuggler, gun runner, SP, <laughs> bank robber. Oh, of course, advertising. So I started a small ad agency and that worked really well. I paid the bills and I wrote the book uh, Shantaram during that time, which I've been working on in the prison, but then finished when I got out. And when the book was uh, successful enough through movie rights and sales, um, you know, paid the bills for the family and looked after everyone and then returned to India um, because I feel I had always, I'd never really completed my connection to India. And of course that was true because I'd, been so close to Guruji, my teacher, but had never actually met him in all the years I'd been there until I returned to India. Mm, wow. Well, <clears throat> two big questions uh, come from this. Heron was one of those things that every, every time I saw anything about it or heard about it, I thought to myself, yeah, that just seems like a recipe for instant addiction. And uh, I had a roommate when I was younger who counseled heroin addicts. And I said, what is the deal? Like, why is it why does it have the effect that it does? And he told me, he said, imagine winning the lottery, you know, getting everything you've ever wanted and having the girl of your dreams, millions of dollars and never having to do any of the work, but getting the feeling you get from it. He said, that's what heroin does. That's the euphoria. Uh, I don't know if that that's entirely accurate. The other thing I have to ask is how the hell did you escape from prison? (laughs) Uh, Well, just by going to the one place that was where they thought no one would ever try. Um, I'm not recommending it uh, to anyone out there who may be listening, and especially to anyone who's serving time. God bless you and keep you safe. Um, If this too shall pass, rise above every situation every day, rise above, this too shall pass, and your life will continue. But um, So I'm not recommending it, but for me, the only way out of that prison, maximum security prison, was by going over the front wall next to the front gate at one o'clock in the afternoon. It was the one place where they thought no one will ever try to escape from here. <laughs> they didn't have like armed you know, security guards ready to shoot people? Of course. I escaped between two gun towers and there are, they were heavily armed. And if they see you, their job is to shoot you. It's not to warn you. If they see you on that wall trying to escape, their job is to shoot you. And there's a perimeter around the prison where they can continue to shoot on the street outside if they want to, if you're trying to escape. No, that's the point. It was next to the main gate and between two gun towers. So it was impossible to get through there, but we did. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So the other thing you mentioned about solitary was that, you know, for some people it breaks them and some people it makes them. 
And you seem to have come out of prison actually reformed. And here in the United States, you know, I've talked to enough incarcerated people on this show at this point that um, it seems that the system is actually not designed for reforming people. And we have one of the highest recidivism rates in the world. And many of them go there and they become lifelong criminals because that's what they learn. And I remember very distinctly the I, I went to San Quentin prison and somebody was getting out after 20 years. And it was a very like intense moment because I thought to myself, wow, somebody's here to meet him. But what if there was nobody here on the gate? Because I've been told they just give you $20 and a bus ticket and you're kind of on your own. Definitely. Um, in fact, that's uh, I actually preferred it that way. I wanted to be released after all those years um, and have no one there. My family were waiting for me uh, at a certain designated point. And I could walk in a straight line for three kilometers to meet them, and which is the first time I've been able to walk in a straight line that long in years. Um, the thing is, most men in prison, in my experience, are not reformed. They're deformed by it. Um, you know, uh, a thing inside us is deformed. Most men who come out of pris- prison, especially five years plus, but any time in prison is probably going to do it to you, um, you have PTSD. Um, you know, soldiers will usually do an 18-month tour of duty, maybe two of those. Some soldiers do even three. Prisoners can do 10, 15 years, and it's PTSD every single day. It's seeing people murdered. It's um, when you're trying to eat, there's a man being mur- murdered opposite you, and you have to keep eating because you're not going to get any other food. That is the only food you're going to get, so you quickly have to scoop it up while that man is bleeding out and dying in front of you because his throat's just been cut. The PTSD that we suffer is extreme, but the main thing is this for me. After my 10 years in prison and in being in prison in three on three continents, in Europe, in India, and in Australia, so having a bit of a a perspective on it, I think that the three juridical components of sentencing traditionally are punishment, deterrence, and rehabilitation. For me, those three don't make any sense really without a fourth one, which is forgiveness. When we're released from prison, we have gone through the programs, we've done the steps, and we've completed our time. We've been released by a parole board or we've been released because the time was completed and it's a non-parole sentence, but we've been released but we know that we are not forgiven. We're unforgiven men. When we get out, there are so many uh, opportunities, careers, and other things that are literally closed to us for life. We are constantly reminded in our interactions with the society that we are unforgiven men. I think that a component of sentencing that says, we as a society will forgive you for this thing you've done if you meet these steps you must meet these criteria, you must do these things to earn the forgiveness. But if you do this and you fly right and you don't mess up in this time and you do the various programs and you come out, you will come out forgiven. Now, there's an analogue for this. In many tribal societies and traditional societies, when a person offends against tribal law, one of the customs is that they will be marked in such a way that the that anyone can see this. It may be a mark on the thigh, on the face, on the, sh- the arm. It's a mark. It may be done with, um, reinforced with ash uh, so that the mark is permanently visible. But what it means is when anyone sees it, this person has offended, this person has paid the penalty, this person has been forgiven. That's what that mark means. 
We have the offended paid the penalty, but we don't have that forgiven part of it. And I think if we have a, a pilot program set up for those who are who pose the least risk to the community, but who are at a high risk of reoffending, start a program where you earn your forgiveness, and that forgiveness goes on. If you're three years clean. A number of jobs that were closed to you suddenly become open. If you're five years clean and no reoffending and meeting all your parole, your obligations as as a citizen, another range of jobs become available, so that you can earn your way back into that top tier of being a, a fully em- empowered citizen in the community who is forgiven, and that's something that's missing for me. Mm. So we'll get into the book right after this, but you know, having read your book, having read your work, nothing about the way that you come across in your books would make me think you're the type of person who would become a heroin addict and end up in prison. So what is it about that? Like, how does somebody like you, who clearly is very smart, who clearly is ambitious, who clearly has a very deep understanding of the world, ends up in a situation like that? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only one thousand five hundred and ninety nine dollars, a saving of three hundred dollars only for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. 
As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Weakness of character, in a simple phrase. Um, (laughs) You know, not having the strength of character, not having the guts to do the right thing when you're confronted with that big challenge. I would say to any father out there who is lose, has lost custody or has had a very reduced custody access to a child and they're, they sincerely love their child, it's just happened in this particular way, I would say um, what I should have done then, work hard, um, save money, uh, write a letter every week to the kid and keep it wrapped up. If you can't deliver that letter to the child, if you're not permitted to or it's not part of the conditions of your visiting keep them in a box and so on. Sooner or later, that girl or that boy is going to want to know their father better, is going to want to come to you. And that little box of letters that you've collected over the, that maybe one a month, but you, here it is, an open let that child is going to read that when they're a grown up person, it's going to mean something. It's going to be very significant. It's going to help them deal with the fact that you were not there when they were a child. Work hard, save your money. And when that child comes to see you and do whatever you can along the way, of course, to help the child. But then when that person is growing up and they're 15, 18, 20, whenever it is that they come, they want to see their father more, I would say, and this for mothers too, if this, because this happens to mums as well, horrifyingly, <laughs> where they lose custody of their kids and so on. Be ready. And when that child comes, say, what is it that you want to do? And let them talk to you about their dreams, their wishes, their visions, And then when you know that one that rings the spiritual bell that you know is right for that child and right for their life, say, I'm here to help you. I've been saving some money for you and so on. That's what a man should have done. That's what I should have done. But I became a junkie because of weakness in my character and basically godlessness. And it took me a long time to realize that whenever I was confronted with something, I was very good at running away from it. And that was basically my one talent was running away from responsibility (laughs) running away from consequences and so on. And solitary confinement required me after the first year of moaning and whinging in solitary, when the calendar clicks over and you hear everyone outside celebrating and the, the car horns and the, the you know, firecrackers and the skyrockets and people celebrating outside beyond the wall. And you realize you've just done a year, you know what that year is and you've got one more in front of you. That's when the bell rings and the penny drops and every cliche comes home to rest with you in that, in that box that you're in and for, you realize I am to blame for all the mess of my life. It's my fault. It's my responsibility. I have to take first, whoa, well, let me think this through and go back and go back and go back and then realize, wow, if I am responsible for all of that, then I can shape my destiny going forward. I can... Mm-hmm promise myself that I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to do that again. And when the confrontation happens, I'm going to try and stick it out and be there and see it through. That was the turning point for me. 
Well, I think that makes a, a perfect segue into the actual book, <clears throat> and you know, and the first section of the book where you, you kind of broke this up in a, you know very very like nice, easy to to organize themes and for us to have a conversation about it. So you start with acknowledgement, which is you say acknowledgement is a commitment to the ultimately unknowable, and the mind rebels against such a leap. Moreover, acknowledgement is a lifetime de- deal. There's no backing out or trial period. So, what do you mean by that? Are we talking about acknowledging the things that? you know, you're responsible for or what you've created in your life. I mean, expand on that for me. I think as a lifetime soldier of God, against God, um, it, it, the commitment for me was perhaps um, a more complex commitment than it might have been for another person who, let's say, has led a fairly spiritual life and, um, and then suddenly says, you know what, I want to go a bit deeper into this. But for me, I'd led an a largely anti-spiritual life. Um, and so it was much more of a complex decision to make to say, I'm, I'm going to do this. And I realized that to be authentic and do this and say, I acknowledge you, if if there's a way of backing out of this, of saying down the line, you know what, um, actually I take that back, I don't acknowledge you anymore, and so on, that's just faking it. And I knew that. And I knew that if I do this, it's it's big. It's a big change in my life. I have to stick with it. And there's no point in making the acknowledgement and making a commitment to surrender the negative in yourself and become devoted. There's no point in that if it's not sincere. So I had to really think long and hard. And that's where I came up with this lifetime commitment that for me, at least, it is a lifetime deal. You can't back out and say, I've changed my mind. You're not there. (laughs) God's not there. And whatever you are, I'm sorry about that. That was (laughs) miscommunication. It's not that. It, it's a lifetime deal. And secondly, it's a big thing to acknowledge the unknowable because you're literally, you know, standing in the wilderness shouting at the sky. It, 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 you, you feel this sense of it. But on the other hand, um, it is required because we have free will. If we didn't have free will, that probably God could just drop a little bit of, you know, understanding into each mind and we'd all be connected really well all the time. But we have free will. And whether people agree with that or not, I don't really care. I know I have free will. I know you have free will. And I'm not interested in the debate about it. For me, it's a real thing. And it's, an, and it's something that I exercise every single day, using my free will and consciously using it. So to if we have free will, then it's required for us to pick up the phone and dial the number. If we don't have free will, we don't even need the phone. We don't even need the acknowledgement because God's going to be inside our head and so on. So it's that aspect that means that it's up to us to pick up that the phone and say, hello, I acknowledge you. And for me, when I did this, uh, the affirmations began on the first day and they've never stopped. It's a constant affirmation of the path, constant. The natural world responds to every beneficial, loving thought we have. <laughs> mm. Well, we'll come to affirmations. So I really loved what you had to say about that. But um, on the, in the chapter on Sender, you say that every enhancement of the authentic self diminishes the ego and every enhancement of the ego diminishes the authentic self. So what is the difference between the two? Or how do you define the difference between ego and authentic self? The authentic self is the voice that chastises and chides the ego um, when the ego is playing up and performing its antics. When we say, ah, that was silly, why did I say that? Or, why did I do that? Or, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. Or, you know what, I should have said this. 
that voice that's saying that, that's you. That's your authentic self talking. The ego, in my view, is a carapace. It's a, a membrane that we create around ourselves. And it has two, from the time we're children, we start creating it. As in very little children, innocence means an absence of ego. But as soon as the ego starts showing itself, the innocence starts diminishing. And we have to re- dig deep to find it again, that very early innocence we have. So the ego is a thing we create from childhood, a membrane around ourselves, and it has two jobs. It is there to project the narrative of who you are. This is me and so on. It's a narrative. It's not every single thing about you. It's not every wicked thought you've ever had. You don't share that with everybody. It's a narrative about who you are. It projects the story of you and it protects the self from the slings and arrows of the world. So the ego is out there doing its job, projecting and protecting. But, and in this world, we need this. We need some ego to protect ourselves because it's a, it can be a very bruising encounter with the world. But in the spiritual, they're not required. The ego is not required. And we need to leave that at the door and go into that spiritual space and leave our vanity, our pride, these other things at the door. Our fears and desires, not required. Go into that spiritual space, empty of that, as innocent as you can be. And then when you come out of that space, the ego jumps back in again because it's required and you have that membrane around you. So if you think of it this way, it's up to you to construct what kind of membrane the ego is. What is it going to project to other people? What is it going to protect you from? What is it not going to protect you from? How is it going to do that? It's a practical thing in this world, but not required in the spiritual connection. Um, Can I make one more comment about that? Yes, please. Just to make it sort of... See, when we are running in panic fear from a predator, maybe a predatory human being, but or a wild animal, a mad dog, and we, and we have to run because that thing has gone crazy and it's running at us. When we do that, we are not thinking, am I running elegantly? Is my running style looking cool? Do I look cool doing this? We're in mad flight, knees in the air, legs going left and right. We do not care. We just want to get out of there. Similarly, so the ego is not required for that flight. We don't need ego for that. We might need it for parading in the supermarket, but we don't need it in this moment of panic fear when we're running. We're not thinking, are we doing this elegantly? Similarly, in the spiritual encounter, the ego is not required. Just as it's not required in panic flight, it's not required in the spiritual. So one thing you say about worthiness is anger, hostility, resentment, jealousy, envy, vanity, pride, malice, and fear. None of these are required for connection, and some are serious impediments to connection. And I read that, and I thought to myself, every one of us feels those emotions at one time or another. Um, is, is, it entirely, is it even possible to rid ourselves entirely of those, those things? Yes, uh, within the spiritual connection space, within the sacred space. I don't think that it's possible to rid ourselves of it all the time. There may be yogis. There may be yogis who achieve this and, you know, women and men who've given their lives to extreme penance and who've managed to overcome all of these things within themselves and they're in a benign state all the time. It may be, but I don't think it's um, something that is open to all of us because we're deeply bound up in this material world. We have obligations and duties and people we love and care for and so on, and people we have responsibilities to, and so on. So I, I don't think that's so much here, but we can put, leave those things. See, to me, let's say vanity and pride, are, we need them. Without a measure of pride, the world's still going to step on you. And without a measure of vanity, you can look like a hobgoblin. 
if you don't have a little bit of vanity. So, uh, and I think without vanity and pride, you know, in this world, we're probably less well off than we would be with a measure of both. However, I think of them as two dogs. I leave them at the door, lovely, big, fluffy dogs. And I leave them at the door of my sacred space and say, you guys wait here. And then I go into my sacred space and every now and then one of them will creep in. I'll be blowing the conch shell and it, it'll be a really nice blow or something. And I think my teacher would love that or, or it'll just occur to me now, whoa, that, that was because I lost my trance state and was actually thinking about what I'm doing. And I blew the conch and I think that's a good, and then I think, oh, that's my pride, man. And I'll say, hello, pride, go back to the door, back you go. And pride will back up and I can continue. So I think it's a skill that we develop on the spiritual path of leaving those unnecessary elements. They're not evil. They're just not necessary in the spiritual space, leaving them at the door. And in a way, an analog for this is musicians. Every successful um, musician who has a long career of working with other musicians is a musician who can leave their ego at the door of the studio. And everyone knows this in music. Those musicians who can't and those producers and engineers and so on who can't do that um, may be brilliant, but they don't keep in continuous, harmonious work with lots and lots of people. Those who do are people who leave their ego at the door. Well, it's the same kind of thing. Leave your ego at the door of the sacred space. It's not necessary. When you come out of there, it'll jump back in again. Mm, wow. Well, let's talk about two other things, submission and renunciation. You say that spiritual submission is actually conscious admission of the inescapability of the logic. If there's a divine perfection, and if you know it, the only logical course of action is to offer sincere devotion in an attempt to connect with that divine perfection in any way possible, however tangentially. Um, so what do we mean by submission? See, people, submission like surrender has a bad rep. And, um, so, you know, surrender doesn't mean, as I said in the book, surrender doesn't mean lying on the ground and being kicked by God. It means surrendering the things that are not necessary to connect with the, with the spiritual. And similarly, submission doesn't mean um, giving up your in personal integrity. Your free will and your personal re- integrity are required for you to submit. It means submission in my, um, my personal experience of it, it means um, recognizing that the divine is beyond anything that you can think, imagine, feel, experience, beyond this, that it is so vast, so huge, so immense, and so on, that the creator of all the suns in all the universes, in the multiverse, in this in infinite creation machine, and so on, that feeds itself in- infinitely from universe to universe to universe, that the creator of this, the divine source, is so far beyond any expression of a material object that um, it, that we ourselves are minute. It's a, a recognition that we've been here for what four million years, humans. Um, how long? How much longer will we last? The planet was here for four thousand million years before we appeared. It will still be here for another. 4,000 million years. Submission is this kind of recognition. When you submit to the planet, you recognize that the planet is way beyond your tiny, tiny significance on this planet. It's the recognition that you need the planet, but the planet does not require you. You are not required for this planet, but you require the planet. If you know what I mean, this is submission, the recognition. If we do not do this, 
We are asserting mastery over the planet, over the process, and over the spiritual path that we are or should be taking as an innocent, not as someone who is manipulating this or using it. So submission is this kind of recognition of your minitude and of the magnitude of the things around you, whether it be the planet, the sun, or the divine. So when you talk about renunciation, you say it's no accident that every ascetic tradition I've studied involves some form of renunciation. I've discussed this with scholars and spiritual teachers, and it seems to serve is that renunciation has two purposes. The first is to demonstrate to yourself, if to no one else, that you're committed. And then you go on to talk about delayed gratification. Um, so talk to me about renunciation in our day-to-day lives, because like I think about this and I'm like, oh, this is you know me resisting the temptation to scroll through social media as a form of renunciation, <laughs> Of course it is. Um, we renounce all the time. And quite often those renunciations we're doing are spiritual in nature without, and we're doing it unknowingly, not recognizing or not even aware that what we're doing is both a material renunciation of something here, but also a spiritual act. Um, the renunciation of violence is at, at um, the same time a physical act in this world that someone has chosen, a decision they've made, and it has consequences because it's, it's an, a diminution, an elimination of violence from that person going forward. That's a physical commitment in this world with its own set of repercussions, but it's also a step on a spiritual path. And whether that person knows that or not, and they may have just said, you know what, I'm always getting into trouble, I'm not going to be violent anymore, and that's the end of it, and that's their only motivation, and so on. At the same time, it is spiritual whether they know it or not. Yeah. So renunciation occurs all the time. We are renouncing things left, right, and center. We're moving from one country to another and change, setting up a new home. We're changing our house, our apartment, changing our job. Um, in a soft, passive sense, when we move from one job to another, we may still keep contact with some of the many friends we had in the previous job, but over time, those will fade to a smaller and smaller number as we increase our connection to the people in the new position that we've taken. In a soft, passive sense, we have renounced the the world of the job that we had before. It's not an active renunciation as a spiritual person does it, but it is a renunciation. So this is happening all the time. When you get a new car, you're renouncing the old one, if you know what I mean. Uh, So renunciation happens all the time. For the spiritual path, it's a conscious step. And um, it has two forms. One is that the teacher will come to you with the renunciation. The teacher will say at a certain point, are you ready for your sankalp, for your vow? And you may say, I don't feel ready. And the teacher will say, I'll ask you again at a certain period of time. If you say, I feel ready, then the teacher will say again, are you ready? Because the vow, a sankalp is for your life. Are you ready? And you say, yes. Now that teacher can say anything the teacher thinks is right for you. May say, teacher may say, you should go to Mount Kailash once every year and go to this temple and put a flower at the feet of this idol. He may say, you should feed a stray animal once a day, every day for the rest of your life. Whatever it is, the sankalp, this is a renunciation in a sense that is also, that is given to you a task, which is also in the form of renunciation. When my teacher said to me, are you ready for your sankalp? And I said, yes, please give me my vow. He said, this is your sankalp. Never drink alcohol again. I said, that's it? He said, that's it. Alcohol will make you stumble from your path. It is not required for the path, and it's unhelpful for you. 
this is your son, Phil. Are you ready to accept it? And I said, I accept it. So that was a, a, a renunciation of something that I might have had a drink from time to time. I didn't drink that much, but um, it was a renunciation of something that was given to me by a teacher, and I accepted it and did that, and I've now renounced alcohol. Other renunciations, when I gave up motorcycles that I love and I gave them up, I didn't even realize at the time. I thought, I have to give up something I really, really love, and I loved motorcycles, so I gave them up and thinking, this is a, a, a clear renunciation. I've given something I love. I'm not just giving away something I don't particularly like, giving it up. What I realized later was that it was exactly the right thing to do for me at that time spiritually, and I didn't even realize it. That the movement away from the whole motorcycle world I'd been in and so on was sort of necessary for what I'm doing now as an artist and as a spiritual practitioner. So funny enough, the things you choose to renounce at the time, you may not even realize that that thing you've chosen to give up, later you'll realize, wow, that's, that was actually very significant. If I'd still been doing that, I don't think I'd be where I am right now on this path. Wow. So <clears throat> let's talk about uh, another thing. You know, in the interest of time, I want to the two things that really struck me. Um, the other, one was manifestation, and I think this really stood out to me because, you know, when that movie The Secret came out, there was this sort of you know idea that I can just create a vision board, stare at it, and money will fall from the sky, and I'll be moving into a mansion. Um, but you actually say that I don't think we can conjure up things in our lives just by wanting them. I don't think anyone can manifest something from nothing. Our intentions manifest specific pathways, each one an alternate future. Each pathway in turn will reinforce the intention that manifested it. A largely negative intention will manifest a largely negative pathway, which will tend to reinforce the negative intention cycle. A positive intention will manifest a positive pathway, which will tend to reinforce the positive intention cycle. So how do you set the intention then to get what it is that you want? <laughs> very, very good question. Fundamental question, in fact. How do we set and reset our intention? Um, one of the, the, the various practices on the spiritual path and one of the great aspects of it is that it, um, it is all about self-discipline. Um, penance is about self-discipline and penance is an absolute requirement for um, further steps along the spiritual path. And this is all about discipline. And self-discipline is something I, I lacked all my life, and it's something I, I only discovered by realizing it was fundamentally important for a spiritual journey, and it's also fundamentally important in this material world as well. Um, I think the, the path itself, the preparation to become devoted, requires those practices of, um, prepare, of getting yourself ready to be worthy enough to walk into a spiritual space and say, please accept this from me. I offer you this. Um, my, my energy, my, my love, whatever it is that I offer you. Now, in the, in the process of getting yourself ready to do that, you're um, cleaning up your intention. It's necessary to get rid of things like maybe malice, maybe a, an, a resentment um, and a sort of angry feeling against about somebody. You need to let that go. You can't take that with you into the spiritual. It's going to keep interrupting and it's going to keep reflecting with whatever it is that you discover in that spiritual space. So that's one aspect of it. Being prepared and being worthy to give devotion actually helps in the discipline of um, shaping your intention. Um, most mystics will tell you, from my experience, the ones I've met and my teacher will tell you that um, this is a, a process of attainment. 
that one of the most significant attainments is managing to fill your intention for most of the day with positive thoughts and so forth. As a creative, for me, um, it is the, the wellspring of um, cleansing in a way. It, creativity is like a, a cleanse, a deep cleanse on your mind because for the entire period that you're focused on making that song, that, that writing that music, playing it, writing that book, um, creating that artwork, for the entire time, your mind is empty of anything but um, the trancing inspiration of what you're doing, the creative trancing of what you're doing. And uh, some stray thoughts may wander in, but the creative process will push them out again. So if I found, find myself um, drifting into a negative thought, um, you know, a thought of resentment or this or that or whatever it is, if I find myself drifting into a negative thought, um, I plunge back immediately into creativity. I think of the next project. What am I going to write on this next page? What am I going to do in that next song when I go back in the studio and so forth? Before I know it, I'm in that space and those, those, that negativity is gone. Another aspect that I would just point out, and there are so many, this would be the whole program on how, how do you keep your intention as pure as you can is basically what we're saying. That's an entire program. But here's one really vital thing that I discovered. Having grown up in a tough working class area surrounded by a lot of rough, tough kids in, in gangs, I never joined them, but I knew the kids. They're all my neighbors in the gangs. Um, I grew up in a world where people literally take from each other all the time. If you're not, if you don't eat fast enough, someone's going to take your plate and eat that food. So it, it, there's a, a constant sense of taking. I discovered as I've traveled the world and moved around that the life doesn't have to be like that. You can surround yourself with the kind of people my teacher would call holy souls. You can surround yourself with giving people, people who are givers. They give more than they take. And if they take, they share it or they give it back. Givers, genuine givers people who are motivated by kindness and empathy, people who are motivated by optimism and by um, a love of life and a love of being alive. Surround yourself with people like this. If you don't, no matter how deeply you go into your own personal spiritual practices, that circle, that membrane around you, if, it, if that membrane of your, if you like, the boundary of your personal protection in life, if that is allowing in negative people, meaning people who are um, only taking selfishly, people who don't share, people who are deeply unspiritual, whose only thoughts are about, say, money and more money and then more money and so forth. This is definitely going to disturb your capacity to, to shape and fill your intention, to make your intention as clean and, and bright as you can. And, you know, clean as a pin is, is what we're, we're looking for. So, I have discovered that having a membrane like the membrane around the human cell, that the membrane around a cell, every single cell, that membrane allows nutrient to flow in. The nutrient of, of people who are givers and who are sharing, that nutrient of their energy will help you and help you to help them. The membrane allows nutrient to flow in. It allows waste to go out through the membrane of the cell. The waste is the things you discover in your connections and friendships that are not required. You get down to a purity of trust and faith, and so you get rid of all the other stuff. And that's the waste that's not necessary as you go deeper into trust and faith in one another. But the membrane is there also to protect the cell from toxins. 
so that elements on the outside that in, in the, the cellular body, that they cannot enter the cell because the membrane is there to protect the organelles within the cell. Similarly, the membrane of the, the boundary or membrane of protection you put around yourself should allow the nutrient of, of positive people with positive intentions and loving people to come in and, and share that energy with you. It should allow for, for the expulsion of things that are not necessary to, to true trust and faith. Waste, throw that away. And also, also should protect that group from people who would just take and not share and break down the cooperation circle that you build up. So number one, building the worthiness within yourself to be devoted in the first place is, is a very positive way to bring yourself into um, a, a sharper and stronger focus on your intention. And the second is surround yourself with holy souls. And every day of your interaction with them will help you to shape your intentions in the most positive way. All right. <clears throat> so let's wrap this up by talking uh, finally about affirmations, because this is something that always has struck me about affirmations is that people are basically bullshitting themselves and telling themselves things that aren't true, uh, thinking that that is going to make those things be true at some point. And you say that in my few years of experience, affirmations are not vitally important to evolving progress on the path. They're not signposts leading the way. So as far as I can tell, in any case, devotion is its own instruction in refinements of practice with its own signs and affirmations are not important to anyone, but the seeker who perceives them. And it's almost impossible to articulate to someone else's satisfaction. So if that's the case, why do you hear this sort of constant need to, you know, in self-help books and all these other things about why affirmations are so important? I think this is an outgrowth from the uh, personal God theory in most religions. Um, the, the relationship of the individual within the religion is um, between a person and um, God. And it's a personal reaction, a personal connection with God. And the statement is, do you believe in a personal God? You may believe in an impersonal God, but do you believe in a personal God that interacts with you individually through the interlocution perhaps of a church? Or, or a teacher, but that that entity, that God can react with you personally. So religions maintain this, and I'm not saying it isn't true. Um, I just think it's probably very difficult because that God that you're talking about is so huge and so vast that it is seemingly, to me, incalculable that we can actually personally interact. So it, I think it's an outgrowth from this that says the universe is going to react to you personally just as God will react to you personally. Um, I, I'm not sure that happens. I'm, uh, as I said in the spiritual path, I've seen many, many, many cases of people pleading um, to the divine, you know, screaming, crying, and achieving a result uh, in the sense that the very thing they wanted has happened and they were saved. I, um, so I'm not discounting this. It's just that to me, I don't see any logic behind this personal interaction. So if there are affirmations, um, for me, the problem is if you tried, if, if you tend to think that that affirmation is either one thing or the other, if you're a scientist and you say that's the, the, when you are blowing the shell and you get a shooting star between your fingers and the first blow and going the other way in the sky, which is virtually impossible with the last blow, exactly at the right moment. You ask yourself, is that an affirmation? A scientific person will say, no, that would have happened whether you were there or not. 
And I agree. It would have happened whether I was there or not. It did not happen. God didn't scratch the sky for me, uh, if you know what I mean. Uh, I agree with them. However, I think that they have failed to see that at the same time, it is both an event that would have occurred whether I'm there or not, and an event that did occur when I was there. And so for me, there is an affirmation experience and a physical phenomenon at the same time. So if we focus, if we think that was done just for me by the universe, I think we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole. If we think it's just science and nothing else, we're down a bit of a scientific rabbit hole. If we accept that both things happened at the same time, an event that would have happened whether I was there or not, an event that did happen when I was there and was an affirmation for me. But beyond that, is it something that is appropriate or valuable for anyone else? No. It's a deeply personal thing, I think. Wow. Um, well, this is a very, speaking of rabbit holes, a very deep one. And I feel like we could talk for three hours <laughs> if we needed to. <laughs> uh, but this has been really fascinating and just eye-opening and insightful. So I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, <laughs> well, of course, um, you know, it, it is uniqueness. Um, but that doesn't really help because each one of us is unique, but not every one of us is, um, immediately unique for me. The essential quality is authenticity. That's the unmistakable quality. Here's an example. I can take a page. Someone can read me a page of text and I will say, even though I don't know the book and I haven't read it. And I will say that's Selman Rushdie. Someone else will read a page. and I'll say that's Virginia Woolf. Um, unmistakable. Someone else will read a page and go, that's Lawrence Dorrell. Uh, that's Chuck Palahniuk. You will recognize Stephen King. That's Stephen King. I know you'll read, someone will read you two pages and you go, I bet that's Stephen King. That unmistakable quality about those things that you know when you hear it, who it is and where and why, that is authenticity. It's reaching for each artist, whatever it is, um, medium they use, to dig deep down into their authentic self, not a projected version of themselves, not a narrative they were given when they were a kid, not something a teacher said to them or a, a previous lover or someone else or a friend or an enemy and so on. The deep authentic self that is inside you to reach into that, to find it, to connect with it and express it and come from that is going to make you unmistakable in my view. Incredible. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. This has been really, really fascinating and funny and insightful. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the new book and everything else you're up to? Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you. Uh, it wouldn't have occurred to me to say that. Uh, well, I'm on IG. It's, um, you know, it's GDR underscore Shantram at IG. You can find me on Instagram I'm on, um, also, I have a really lovely team of, of very creative, once again, unmistakable creatives who are working with me and uh, helping me put this together while I do the music. We have, um, my music is available on Apple Music and so people can listen to it free. It's on iTunes, it's on um, Spotify. Um, I've been with Spotify from the very beginning and a num any, everywhere else that you listen to music, you'll find it. Uh, so the, we have four new albums coming out in the next two months. We have um, four singles an EP, 
new artworks, three new uh, love stories that are coming out in ebook. Um, simple love stories are uh, just as pure escapist entertainment um, and so forth. So we have a lot of work coming out. And there's, you know, gregorydavidroberts.com. Um, people can find me, I think, I guess, through Instagram and, and here and there and stuff we put on Facebook and so on. So I'm out there. Uh, but as you, as you know, um, Jamaica is my home now and I live here. I'm in, in my studio. I don't go very far. I don't go from where I am, from my studio. I'm working and creating all the time. Um, and so, you know, people, if they are anyone who's out there and so on, Jamaica is a wonderful, wonderful place. The whole world is a beautiful world. Jamaica is a wonderful place to visit. Um, keep that in mind when you're doing your travels. You'll find the vibe and you'll feel the vibe, the one love vibe here. Mm. Amazing. Uh, well, thank you so much. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.